Hey everyone, welcome to The Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name's Jacob Garrett, with me as always is Jonathan Cornford. G'day folks. Manacast is the podcast of an organisation called Managum. It's all about the intersection between Christian faith, ecology and economics. We record the Manacast from the lands of First Nations peoples. I'm talking to you today from Wurundjeri land, north of Melbourne CBD in Victoria. And I'm speaking to you from Jar Jar land in Bendigo, central Victoria. We'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Today on the Manacast, we want to talk about the ways that Christian economic convictions have expressed themselves through history as well as now. And today we've got a political one. We want to discuss Christian socialism. John, I don't know much about Christian socialism, but I know it's a topic that's pretty close to your heart. It's also one that comes pretty loaded for many people when they hear that word socialism. And I think many Christians would think socialism and Christianity don't go together. They shouldn't be put together. Uh, my main experience with socialists, admittedly, is from my uni days when I would encounter people from the socialist alternative or one of those groups wearing red shirts out the library and you'd have to try and dodge the pamphleteers as you try and get in and borrow your books. And they want me to come along to like a Marxism session or something. How much has that idea of socialism and that whole direction of socialism got to do with what we want to get into today? Yeah, good place to start. Uh, not much is a short answer. Um, so yeah, socialism, I mean, really, if we, to get into this episode, we're going to have to clear a bit of baggage away because it's a, a word that has a lot of baggage. Uh, and for most people, what they associate with that word socialism is going to be uh, misleading for helping understand the subject that we're wanting to get into today. Um, yeah, so uh, the word socialism, uh, it's one of those funny words that actually it's got no no precise meaning uh, and it's been used and through history in lots of different ways by different people and even today there's different people who use it quite differently so the sort of uh, socialist alternative angry lefty uni students that you've encountered use it quite differently from say how Bernie Sanders in the US would use it mm. or um, how a trade unionist in Germany might use it they might mean all quite different things um, and that's different again from what we're going to be discussing today, which is uh, Christian socialism. Maybe the biggest thing to say for us, which is probably the most important thing, is that for many people, socialism is something that's uh, very closely related to or the same as communism or uh, has something to do with the ideas of Karl Marx, is basically a Marxist idea. Uh, and certainly the word has been used and been part of Marxism uh, and is related to communism in its history. Uh, but that's they don't have a monopoly on that word. Uh, and so the word socialism was around uh, a fair while before Marx. He was just using a word that was already in currency. He moved to the words word communism, actually. Uh, and really so. And the ideas we're talking about there is uh, the sort of basic ideas in, in Marx where um moving towards where the, the workers become uh, control all the means of production and actually control the state. He talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is the working class and the state being controlled by uh, a part of the a workers' revolutionary party who would own the means of production, that is, you know, own all the factories and stuff like that. 
Yeah. Um, so it's like big state, state centralized control, communist Marxism. That's yeah, not that, that's so not what we're talking about. That is not what we're talking about. As you'll see, what we're, we're going to do is quite different from that. Um, but they've all related to this word socialism. And I think that it's helpful to just break it down to its most simple uh, element to start with to help people get into this. So the, the term socialism came about, was starting, as far as I understand, really in the early 19th century. Um, uh, and it was amongst... Uh, radical thinkers in Europe and in England who were really counterposing it to what they saw in uh, the rise of what we would now call industrial capitalism. Uh, they were what they saw as a highly individual, individualistic society, uh, and uh, they were counterposing individualism, a society that's all about pre preferencing and prioritizing the rights of individuals to do what they want and to accumulate what they want, uh, and, and suggesting alternative, which is socialism, uh, where the the preference and the priority is for the good of the whole for society. So uh, it's not so a the, it's not a particularly religious or irreligious idea as such. We know most of us have probably know Marx quotes about religion. He's definitely no fan of religion himself. No, but uh, well, in fact, that's a that's a, a big question in itself because so some of the early from early on, there were both religious, Christian, and non and anti-Christian socialist thinkers. Right. Uh, but you can well, so in England, uh, think guys like Robert Owen, one of the early, uh, was really moving away from Christianity, and Marx certainly. Uh, but as many people have pointed out, both Robert Owen and Karl Marx were full. Uh, they were, in a way, uh, secularized versions of the of of the kingdom of God that they were operating out of. They were. Um, very much in, informed and influenced by really uh, the Christian ideas of, of 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 brotherhood and social commonwealth, mm. uh, but but just stripped of religion. Uh, so it, you could say even, and many people have argued that um, there's a sort of latent religiosity in Marx and and other um, supposedly irreligious socialist thinkers as well. Yeah, and you can kind of, I mean, you could bend the categories a bit and say they've got a sort of eschatology and that kind of thing. Um, so while we're not talking about Marxist communism or that form of socialism, I guess a lot of people to my mind would also say, well, hasn't socialism had its day? It hasn't been tried and failed. I guess we'd say that's not what, that's not the kind of socialism we're talking about. Uh, well, that's one answer. Yep. So that's that the Soviet communism has been tried and has failed. I think that's hi historically a demonstrable, uh, uh, and was an incredibly uh, painful and damaging experiment for humanity, actually. Um, but actually, you could make uh, the reverse case in that other kinds of socialism have been tried and succeeded. Uh, so lots of people would say many of the forms of uh, uh, economy that we have in Europe, and even some people would say Australia, uh, what we often call, refer to as socialist de uh, social democracy, is really the fruits of socialism. Uh, so these prosperous, relatively equitable societies with high uh, high values on people's on rights, both individual and social rights, on equity, these sorts of things, is the triumph of socialism. Um, so uh, it, it sort of depends what categories you're playing with and how you you're seeing things transmitted through history. But um, 
I think a strong case can be made to say that a lot of what we value about Australia, let's say compared to a country like America, has to do with uh, the influence of socialist ideas. Mm. So I guess in one form it does work or it has worked and it's worked its influence. Cool. So you said 19th century. How do we really get going with a, a specifically Christian socialism? Uh, yeah, well, actually, so Christian socialism, you can date quite specifically. Then there's, um, I think it's like a date in May or April. I forget the actual date. Uh, when three uh, uh, guys in in England get together, Frederick uh, Maurice, Charles Kingsley and John Ludlow, and they get together um, on the day or the day after, I can't remember, of a very significant uh, massive protest march in England called the Chartist uh, protests. Uh, so just to set the background for you, um, it's in the really the, the thick of the Industrial Revolution going on. Uh, workers have been brought into the all, all these new workers have been brought into cities, industrial cities, which are growing massively. Uh, there's people, incredibly difficult working conditions, crowded uh, slum housing, poor sanitation, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and lots of in unhappiness amongst uh, the lower classes in industrial uh, Britain and in, in Europe as well. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, uh, ferment going on amongst uh, sort of some revolutionary ferment. Trade unions are starting to, to happen as a move, movement called Chartism, which is workers getting together uh, basically who want basic political rights at so this time in England. Uh, uh, workers uh, don't have the vote. In fact, uh, only a very few people in England still have the vote at this stage. So the Chartism is a call for political rights. Um, and they have this massive protest march with a massive, massive petition that they bring to Parliament. Uh, and they're dealt with very harshly. Uh, and Kingsley, Maurice and Ludlow get together. Uh, and uh, Maurice is the uh, a senior clergyman at the time based in Oxford. And they uh, get together and decide we need to find a Christian way to support uh, workers because workers are going through uh, uh, having a, a horrible time in the new industrial order and they're being left uh, uh, to suffer and we need to find ways to support them. And so that's where they coined the term Christian socialism to essentially coin the idea that the church does or should hear the cries of the workers and that they stand alongside them in all sorts of things. Mm. But as you say, like the idea of socialism wasn't exactly theirs or, you know, they socialism already existed. No. So they were picking up a word uh, that was already in currency uh, and they were, to some extent, they were wanting to, so there were already different ten ways that that word was being used. And they were, one of their objectives was wanting to defuse some of the revolutionary tendencies uh, to the word, right, uh, and uh, so they were they were worried that um, because of the, uh, and they were very explicit. They 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 said um, that the industrial system was so harsh that it was driving workers uh, towards something like revolution, which would be terrible for everyone, uh, and therefore we need to hear their cries and to take action uh, for the for the for the good of everyone, not just for workers. Actually. Mm. Um, so they were trying to defuse some of that revolutionary uh, impulse uh, and really to um, uh, find ways to support, um, I guess, some uh, 
bring into how people thought about the structure of economy and economic life uh, the ideas of the New Testament and, and Christianity. Yeah, like I was going to say, what makes it, if, if there's already other socialists doing similar things, even if it's in a more revolutionary way, uh, what makes it specifically Christian? Uh, so I guess what they were doing, some of what the some of the ideas they were talking about were the, were similar. So ideas of brotherhood uh, they were talking about. So a big thing that the, uh, was central to them was um, denouncing a society based on competition uh, and uh, rather seeing in the Bible the the ethos ethos of cooperation as being uh, what's being uh, central. And so. They are holding that in common, but but it, pointing to the, I guess, the religious and the moral grounding of it uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to give it much stronger moral authority, but also to call the church into the fight, if you like. So mm. that was the other part of there. Uh, so up until this point, the church, uh, much of the church had been uh, really uh, silent on workers' issues and had uh, had really been associated with the economic elites and the upper classes uh, in and certainly in the minds of many workers and uh, uh, so you know particularly through the 18th century the the church of england was uh, really strongly aligned to the upper classes um, and they were really trying to call the church uh, call the church out on its hypocrisy and to call it back towards what they saw where it should be with uh, aligning with uh, with the suffering how did that go? Did they get much pushback? Did oh, they, they got a lot. So they, they, uh, uh, Maurice lost his job at Oxford, and uh, they had a, you know, they were seen as, even though by our standards, what they are calling for was quite moderate, uh, you know. Um, so in the end, what they, the, what they were pushing for mostly was to uh, found workers cooperatives. Um, so they, they didn't. Uh, they weren't that much involved in parliamentary politics or anything like that. But what they their, their main uh, uh, activity was to to start workers cooperatives. So uh, so workers weren't dependent on uh, other employers. Uh, so and they say particularly say um, whether it's tailors or bakers or brewers uh, that they would get workers together and they would. Uh, pool their money and buy what they needed to, to to start a business, and the workers would own the business. Uh, so that's what we call a producer cooperative these days, right? And so they that that was uh, one of their main activities. But even something as as moderate as that uh, was seen as pretty radical by a lot of uh, people in the church, and they certainly caught a, uh, a lot of blowback from that. But it didn't die off. There was some some level of uptake somewhere, right? Yeah, so the first flush of Christian socialism didn't really go very far, but um, their ideas were out there and they influenced probably more people than they thought. Uh, and there's a second stage of Christian socialism where it then starts to gather a bit more steam. So this is from the uh, roughly about the 1870s through to the early 1900s. And that's like the second generation. The names are, are there, the big names of people like um, Bishop Westcott, Stuart Hedlam, Scott Hollander, and one of the big ones was uh, Bishop Charles Gore. Uh, and these guys uh, were, they, they were all clergymen and, uh, and senior clergymen, a couple of bishops in there. Uh, and they had read the work of the Christian socialists and 
done a lot of thinking about this stuff. And what, what they did in this second generation was really to bring the ideas of Christian socialism together with what was called um, then the, the Anglo-Catholic movement. So this was a movement within Anglicanism, so uh, the Church of England, uh, to reclaim some of its uh, its Catholic roots, uh, its more sacramental roots. So sometimes the, when you talk about high church Anglican, you you probably heard that too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Smells and bells. Think, think <laughs> of smells and bells. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was a move to... to so this is where that that movement comes from in the in the nineteenth century to re-embrace the sacramental uh, high church practices, uh, m- much more closely aligned to both the the theology and the practice of the Roman Catholic Church, but without uh, giving their allegiance to the Pope. Um, and so they wedded Christian socialism with a lot of with these Anglo-Catholic theology, which was sort of, I guess, very much counterposed against what they saw as um, uh, the failures of some of 19th century evangelicalism, uh, and particularly in this case, uh, the ways in which evangelicalism had um, focused on theology of atonement and morality and really preached at workers, you know, to pick up their moral life, not to drink and do things like that, but not paid any attention to their social and economic circumstances and not showed any interest in that and really been seen as an otherworldly faith. So is that is that like under the influence of like what we were talking about last episode, the Catholic social thought is a lot richer than many strands of Protestantism. There's a lot more of a, a, a robust concern for the things of this world, perhaps. A- absolutely. So so the, the Anglo-Catholics are very much uh, reading Catholic social teaching as well as they're producing their own. So the, there's a whole body of Anglican social teaching, which sort of runs in parallel to Catholic social teaching. It's separate. And actually, Cath- it gets more complex than that because Catholic social teaching ends up drawing a lot on on Anglican social teaching as well. So there's a bit of um, of mutual uh, pollination going on there. Mm. Um but yeah, so they're the currents that that they're drawing from, and right at the heart of that theology is really the uh, whereas even evangelicalism prioritised the atonement and Jesus uh, dying for your sins, uh, the Anglo-Catholics prioritised uh, gave preference uh, uh, the centrality to the, to the act of the incarnation, that is, the Word becoming flesh. And all that that means for human life and how we occupy the material world and its huge, profound significance for um, uh, all of uh, individual bodily life, but also social life of human beings. Uh, Yeah, so the the incarnation for them meant that, you know, God was entering into creation and it's God's big yes to, uh, to creation and to humanity and and showing us the spiritual importance of the material order, if you like. Mm, and therefore, drinking, in moderation at least, is good, and a, a good gift, and that kind of thing, right? Sure, that would be... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very evangelical place to go with that. But yeah, that would be one of, one of the things that would they would say. Much more significantly, they would say, what this means is we need to see that much more clearly the, the profound dignity of every human being who bears the who is in Christ and in the image of God, uh, and 
uh, we can't ignore them. Christ came to God, came into bodily existence, and we can't and showed care for humans' uh, bodily um, concerns in the world, and we can't ignore people's bodily concerns. So we need to show care for the for economic and social suffering as well as uh, people's spiritual state. And in fact, that they made the point uh, very clearly that you can't divorce the two. You cannot divorce people's spiritual state from their economic and social state. They, they go together. Mm. So if we want to be involved in uh, bringing the gospel and to embodying the kingdom of God in the world, then that has to uh, affect our social and economic world as well. That that was at the heart of their ideas. Mm. Especially when it's the many people are so hard at it in that industrial revolutionary sort of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, so it meant that the, that they, they really saw the material world as valuable of itself and bodily life. And every, it's what we call a sacramental view of the world. So in a sacrament, uh, we think, think of like uh, communion, uh, the material goods points to a spiritual meaning. And they, they say, well, that, that's actually the truth of all creation. All material things point point to have spiritual significance and vice versa all, all things spiritually significant must find form material form somehow hmm. Hmm. so what what are they starting to do then this sort of second stream what what are they putting their energies into so there's a, a couple there's sort of a radical stream and a reformist stream they go there's uh, some differences um so the radical stream they fought film a some groups called things like the Guild of St. Matthew and the Christian so Socialist League. And they start uh, writing up ideas of what a, a socialist, Christian socialist society would, would look like. And it involves pretty significant transformations of, you know, the existing order. Um, and it, you know, uh, so of, of what property ownership looks like and what industry looks like and all this sort of stuff. The reformer stream uh, want to think, are much more careful and want to think, uh, you know, okay, where's what are the problems that confront us and what might we be able to do practically here and now to make that a little bit better? Uh, so they're more in, in the line of uh, moving towards uh, uh, parliamentary acts for factory reform and things like that, you know, the, make mm. this little change here, make that little change there. Um, and, you know, sometimes they uh, they draw on each other's ideas. Sometimes the radicals think the reformists are a bit wussy and so on. And a different line that you have another separate from those guys, um, a guy like Keir Hardy, who is a coal miner from Scotland, who's reading the, this sort of literature and he committed Christian, a bit of a John the Baptist figure, and he goes and starts the Labour Party. Uh, and he so he's a really impressive Christian uh Really impressive Christian, full stop. Uh, and but he takes it into politics and and creates a political party. So do you so mean the one of the key parties in Britain now? He started. Yeah. So that right. it has the it, he began as the Independent Labour Party, but it's what becomes eventually the Labour Party. Uh, right. Has its roots uh, in this Christian, uh, essentially Christian socialism. So um, yeah, uh, and and it, so and he's moving towards parliamentary reform. Um, but that's the sort of stuff. Uh, that they were talking about. But, you know, still a lot of writing and talking going on was mm. probably at this stage. So, like, are the workers who are actually stand to benefit from this stuff, are they benefiting yet, or is it just writing and talking? 
Oh, so, um, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in so that through the 19th century there are reforms, uh, factory acts reforms, and there's big, the big, very early beginnings of what we would call social welfare starting to come in. You have, you know, this the time of Charles Dickens is writing, uh, and you have the studies of William Booth in the late 19th century re revealing how much poverty there was in a city like London. And so, you know, all sorts of things going on as well. Uh, but yeah, so they're part of a whole big, uh, you know, uh, mix of things, which is uh, really trying to deal with all the problems that have come up in industrial society. But, you know, uh, they're, they're having, their ideas are certainly getting out there. Right. So when when does it really start to like percolate down and have some some robust response and and action taken. So I reckon that the the really interesting a significant phase of Christian socialism is the what we might call the third generation of Christian socialism which really um takes off from the uh, early 1900s uh particularly and after the first world war um and uh, I guess for for our purposes we'll focus on the that interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War, uh, between 1918 and 1939, uh, when uh, a whole lot of stuff happened in Britain and really Christian socialism, uh, not as a specific, as a single organisational movement, but it's the ideas that came from it really flowered in, uh, in the political life in Britain. And um, so for... It's a big story to tell, uh, but for our purposes, if we just focus in on two really key characters who are William Temple, who was um, Bishop of Manchester at one period and then became the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the senior churchman in England uh, in the late 1930s, and his very close friend, uh, Richard Henry Tawney, R.H. Uh, Tawney, who was a historian, uh, economic historian, uh, and very much involved in uh, with Temple, both in church stuff, but also in politics. Um, and they were part of a big uh, of a of a period in time. So when in interwar Britain, when just to set the scene, uh, so the, the the First World War was a massive catastrophe and shock for everyone, and it really caused a lot of soul searching uh, and and a crisis of confidence in western civilization if you like mm. and it, that sort of opened up the door for uh, pe people were asking questions and you have this group of people who have been so tawny and temple and, and a bunch of their cohort who have been reading the first and second generation christian socialists been reading a lot of other stuff as well and doing some hard thinking and they have ideas and they step into this uh to the this tumultuous time and they have a clear vision uh and have an incredible impact uh so this is a time of uh what we might call something like a renaissance of the church's political voice in in england um so uh through the 19th century probably most people will be familiar you know christianity is starting with um darwin and evolutionism and uh you know a whole bunch of uh new secular and atheist uh ideologies coming along, Marxism, uh, the church is on the back foot um, and Christianity is seen as in decline. Well, in this period, the Church of England in particular in England has a bit of a renaissance where 
it sort of becomes the moral center of Britain again. Uh, with and that's very much to do with the character of people like William Temple and R. H. Tawney, who are who had a political a, a national political voice and a a authenticity and moral character to carry it and integrity that that could carry it and and they had a huge impact on on like the Labour Party and its policies, but even on the Conservative parties uh, and 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 really the 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 fruit of that those ideas was really to come after the Second World War in what's called the post-war settlement, which really show, bears a lot of the imprint of the ideas of people like Temple and Tawney, what, what came to be called um, the British welfare state after the, the Second World War. Hmm. Um, and in fact, William Temple was the guy who coined the term welfare state. Um, although when he said that, he meant something very different to what we mean by welfare state. But we, we could come to that if we get to it. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, I know that Tawny is a bit of a hero of yours um, and much of your thesis references his work in one way or another. Um, what are his key, like you said, he had a coherent vision and he steps into this questioning period between the interwar where people are ready for something new, maybe something a bit more radical. What are his? What's his key vision for a different way of doing things, of ordering life? Yeah. Okay. So, so just to give you a little background, um, so R. H. Torney was a he's generally remembered as an economic historian, but he actually he was a he was a historian of ideas as well as much as anything. Um, he was a guy who, though, really committed his life to uh, I guess living in solid. He was a upper middle class guy. School at, went to school at Rugby College, uh, you know, University at Oxford, all of that sort of stuff as did William Temple. But actually, um, after Oxford, he went and lived in the slums in, in London in a place called Toynbee House uh, and really began... Uh, he'd been sent out of Oxford with by a challenge from his mentor to go and find out about poverty, why it exists and what to do about it. And right. really, the rest, rest of his life can be seen as a response to that challenge. Wow. And... So he, he, as well as being a historian, he ends up working for the London School of Economics, but actually he, he spends much of his life in working men's education. So uh, actually teaching uh, uh, trade unionists and working men in different parts of England. Um, and so very close contact with workers uh, and he gets involved in the Labour Party. So that, that's his background. He's not so... Um, if I we just call him a historian, you might think of of him as a just an academic, but actually he was someone immersed in the struggles of working people, uh, and also then he became immersed in the the labour movement itself. So the politics of trade unions and the Labour Party. He was very involved in the Labour Party. So he was a political activist, an academic, um, as well as a on the grounds on the ground person you know at the front line with workers sort of guy mm. Mm. so from that experience and you know whatever background and and skills he'd gained in the the academic side and then the actual lived experience what did he see as what needed to change so um taught so for so tawny very much thought of himself as a socialist and talked about um socialist ideas and for him socialism was all about uh, coming back to the meaning or the purpose of things. So this is this becomes very similar to what we talked about in uh, the 
our episode on Catholic social teaching. So at the center of everything, what he, he what he what he argued for was what he called the functional society. And by functional, he meant a society that is focused on its purpose. And so the idea of purpose, or in uh, the the philosophical way of saying of telos, the meaning or the the end for which things are made, was central to everything for Tony. So if we're thinking about industrial production and we're wanting to think about uh, its structure and how it's arranged, we need to ask what's its purpose. Uh, so, and we need to ask about all its purposes rather than just uh, the capitalist assumption that its purpose is to make profit. Uh, he wants to think about it, its uh, purpose in God, which is uh, to supply human needs uh, of various kinds, needs for to for our consumption, to to provide the material basis for a good social life, uh, needs for work. We we have needs for good work and, and things like that. So. So the idea of foundation of his socialism was the, was the idea of purpose, and for, that was very toast, closely then tied into the ideas of fellowship. So that was his other second big idea that the core purpose of uh, for humans, our telos, is to be in relationship, and uh, it's to be in relationship with God, uh, but also to be in relationship with other people. And that should find expression in social life. So he would say he and many others were arguing that economic life was driving people apart uh, in class-based ways and in, in through competition. And we should be seeking ways by which humans uh, were coming into closer fellowship with each other. Hmm. Uh, and that was closely linked also to his idea of um, freedom and flourishing. To, to be in fellowship to, with each other, we need to be properly free people. And so by that, he meant what we'd often mean po uh, political freedoms like democracy. So it was very big on, on democracy, but not just political democracy, but what he called economic democracy. Uh, and that is to, to have a truly free society, workers need to have some sort of, uh, you need to... Uh, address the power mismatch in the economic sphere, not just the political sphere. Uh, and and the ultimate purpose of all of this was the flourishing of individuals. And individuals could only flourish uh, when they were in fellowship with each other, when they're engaged in activity in life, which is directed towards its proper telos, its true telos. Um, yeah, so uh, they were the sorts of, the, the top line ideas be, behind his socialism. And then that found its uh, worked its way down to how he thought about work, how he thought about property and how he thought about the structure of industry. Right. So, I mean, very briefly, what does that actually translate to on the ground or, or practically? Okay. <laughs> very brief. <laughs> That's you ask hard things of me here, Jacob, to try and yeah. Well, it's all it's all well and good to talk about fellowship, freedom, flourishing, yeah, but like, I what, know, do, what I does know. that actually mean? I guess it's important to realise how different it is to Marxism, though. I guess uh, particularly where uh, the sort of theological basis of where he's going. Uh, what does it mean? Um, so uh, a couple of things. It means a big emphasis on the dig dignity of work. Um, so really uh, saying actually people aren't there just to 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 earn a bread for themselves by the you know by the skin of their teeth and the sweat of their brow actually we are made for for good work uh, and 
and therefore we all have a right. Uh, humans have a need and a right to dignified work, and we should uh, enable people to be able to find that. Uh, that that so the system should not uh, should not disqualify them from being able to find meaningful dignified work. Hmm. So you, you can't you can't just do what someone I met once described as one of his old jobs, which is standing at the bottom of a conveyor belt, and newspapers in rolls would come down, and as soon as there were five, he would pick them up and put them in a box. That was his job. Yeah. So I mean, he was he, he very much a work that turned people into machines he was against. He wasn't against industrial production um, at all. He, he thought uh, he, he thought you could match industry, you know, industrialism with good work, but it meant you had to think about things differently. And so that required two things. To, you had to rethink the ownership question, who was in control, and the, the organisation question. So I'll, that leads me into, I'll get onto property, which is a pretty big part of his socialism. So right, you know, the big critique of all socialists is that it's uh, that all the property, the main, the big economic property, the, uh, the ownership of factories and that that sort of stuff is in the, in the hands of very few people, and they have immense power. So you know, a few people control tens, a hundred thousands of people, hmm. uh, and uh, so the the Marxists, their response to that is to want to to strip those people of property and to give it to the state and the state will run the factories and the workers will be and the state will represent the workers um so tawny and socialists like him very similar to catholic social uh teaching rejected both of those uh, and so his socialism was based on a defense of property not uh, getting rid of it uh, uh like private defense, property including private yeah. property uh, yeah. and what the they saw as the ideal and what was necessary for true ec freedom, economic freedom as well as political freedom, was as wide a distribution of property as possible. Uh, so uh, people should be able to have the, the goods that enabled them to live a dignified life and a reasonably independent life. Not fully, no one can be independent, uh, but, you know, to be able to make enough choices for themselves. Um, where he differed from both, uh, from uh, and was more sophisticated than, uh, say, Catholic social teaching, particularly. And we talked, I think, about uh, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc in the, mm. that the mm -hmm. previous episode. Uh, they <laughs> tended to be pretty idealistic. Um, so Tawney saw that they they thought that you know everyone should just have three acres and a cow, you know, or something like that. It wasn't quite that bad, but, you know, <laughs> something like that. He realized in industrial society, you can't do that. You need, uh, there's all sorts of different economic functions that, that need to get done. And what he realized as an economic historian is that property, rights and property is not a single or simple thing. Um, that there are things that have developed historically and they're always socially conferred privileges. Um, so all property rights uh, are things that you, they only mean anything because society allows you to have them. Uh, so, you know, if someone just comes into your house and decides to, they're going to live there, uh, you can call the police, the police will come and remove them and society will back them up. And mm -hmm. that's, uh, society backs up your property rights. All property rights are like that. And he re realized actually there's not no such thing as any absolute property right. And what we need to do is think about what property rights are good for. 
and what sort of property rights are good for what sorts of things. And he realized that there's all sorts of different types of property and some thing types of property are better suited to some activities and some sorts of property rights are better suited to other activities. So for example, um, if you are a agricultural worker, uh, it's good for you to own your own tools, a pick and a shovel and things like that. Uh, and that you should have, uh, if you're a farmer, you should, you should own your own tools. Um, if you work in a factory as a single person, you can't, uh, you can't own that. So then it becomes what's the best means of ownership of a factory. And there he would say, well, it sort of depends on the nature of the work, what size factory, Sometimes it's best for that factory to stay in private hands, to be as as is a, a private ownership. In other forms of uh, industrial work, it might be better for the workers to cooperatively own that enterprise. Uh, and there are any number of enterprises uh, out there in the, the economy that, that workers could just as well own and manage themselves. And in some activities, some really central uh, core activities, it's better for them for the state to own those things. Um, so different to the Catholics who were totally against state ownership of anything and different to the Marxists who wanted state ownership of everything, <laughs> he saw a much more diverse range of property rights that included private property, cooperative forms of property and some forms of nationalization. Although, uh, you know, he, he thought nationalization was something that was necessarily if used sparingly and if used well. Mm, but it wasn't a one size fits all in life, in economic life. S certainly not. Yeah. So he had a very sophisticated view of thinking about economic structure and property. And then that, that went down in, into how he thought then about industrial organization. And so, and that comes down to whether, whether an industry was where the was privately owned with, you know, factories were privately owned or cooperatively owned what what was necessary for both worker dignity and even actually he argued for 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 true efficiency not just financial efficiency but for the good and proper use of materials uh, was to give workers a much stronger stake in the management and the running of that industries uh, and not just workers actually he he argued that consumers also should have a, a stake in any given industry so right. and that's what does that look like so uh, essentially, it meant he he thought uh, that you should every industry should be formed in some sort of either he called a profession or a guild. Uh, so these are the two ideas um, that they should. So that we know with a, a profession, the idea of a profession, say think of uh, like the medical profession, uh, doctors. Uh, that they have a professional society. And right at the heart of the idea of that profession is that they provide a, a fundamental service to society. And all their standards are based around that. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, if you go to, just to draw the contrast, if you go to Harvey Norman and you buy a TV, uh, you buy that basically on the idea of buyer beware, you know? Uh, mm. So, you know they're trying to make a profit and you you might get a good deal, you might not. When you go to the doctor, you do not go with, uh, in the back of your mind, buyer beware. You <laughs> expect the doctor to do their utmost to work for your benefit, right? Yeah, there's no Hippocratic oath for TV salespeople. 
Exactly. So what he's saying is that that all uh, industrial life should be shaped around some idea of professional service, um, that they understand what their their vocation is, their purpose is in society. Uh, and to do that, you need to bring together managers, workers and consumers, the people who are the end um and so you need, you know, uh, in a industrial professional associations, you need those representatives, and they will be the people who think about uh, the industry standards and think about, you know, how do we shape our industry? What are the standards that we work to? Uh, this this sort of things, and then who, how they think about wages, and so um, wage wages would be set in each industry based on what was necessary for uh, to meet the needs of workers, to meet good standards, but also to 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 meet the needs of consumers as well. Mm. I've also read um, in Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, he mentions how Tawny is very against uh, people owning stuff when they don't actually contribute to that thing. Like they might they might own the business, but they, they just don't really even run it anymore. It just runs on its own. They employ other people to run it. He was So he's very opposed to what he called irresponsible or functionless property. Uh, so, uh, and a, a case in point for him was share ownership. So people who own shares in a company and they don't put any work in, they're not involved in the management, the running of it. They just extract a dividend, uh, each year, uh, and they hope their share price will go up and they'll sell it one day to make a profit. And he thought that was really bad for companies. And I think there's history bears out that there's, has lots of negative impacts on the decisions corporations make. Um, so he's very against things like what, what he called irresponsible property. Uh, and he said it, property rights should be connected to involvement. If you don't have an involvement, then um, you shouldn't be an owner. You could, you might, you might uh, uh, let sell bonds to a corporation and earn interest off them that way, but you're not an owner. Uh, and the the owners should be invested. Ownership should be invested with people who are actively involved in and invested in the work itself. Yeah, interesting. Because I it, like I feel like the goal of so much of the way economics is is awash around us at the moment is that you know people people talk about self generating income and people talk about um, building a business to the extent where you can it's self perpetuating and you don't need to be involved there's this kind of what's the goal it's getting out of work yes. but but owning the thing that's producing the money that causes you to still be able to live he he seems to be saying no absolutely not you're not you shouldn't seek that as your goal no no so very much he saw property should always be tied to contribution so the idea of property rights should be tied to its function in society and he actually had a he had a grade of there was he nine forms of property for and and he graded them from from most useful to society down to least useful and i think share ownership was close to the bottom <laughs> there whereas i think many people would um kind of maybe not praise but certainly it's it's kind of incentivized in a way that like oh well if you work hard enough to be able to and you're strategic enough with your money and your investment that you get to a point where you no longer need to work like you won like that's that's kind of implied that that's what we would all do if we could get there, but you know you were clever enough to get there or something. Yeah, Tony yeah. would so say, he, "No, you're you're a fool. You're doing it the wrong way." Yeah, and you and we're made for good work. You know that's actually where we we find for we find our telos in contribution and in our meaning in contributing to the uh, 
to the goodness of the the whole. Yeah, not not achieving financial independence as a sort of economic nirvana, an escape yeah. escape from the system. It's fascinating. Like I'm just considering how far things would need to move from here to to get there. Exactly. Uh, uh, but actually, some of those ideas uh, have really took have gone further than you might think so we we have forms of those um those representative boards so things like um or oh, I, I uh, our corporatized um utilities in australia are based on that the idea that you have representatives of workers management and consumers involved in the running of those utilities hmm. uh, and th th that's where those ideas come from yeah there you go um we mentioned that they were both Temple and Tawny were both Christians. Uh, Temple was even Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, surely that means that there's some sort of role for the church to play in this transition. Did they did they see the church as dragging its heels? Did they have a really clear vision of what the church ought to be doing towards these kinds of events? Yeah. So I mean, they they saw the church really as the. Uh, at, at at its heart, the moral conscience of the nation, and so you know these are Church of England people, uh, and it's in England the church is established and has a, is rep represented in Parliament and so on. So it has, it's different to in Australia. Um, so, uh, um, so they really saw, and at that time it it's it actually sort of still was, uh, and it was act well going through a renaissance where, to some extent, the church was. The and people like William Temple uh, had a moral authority in uh, in national political life, which is um, which they hadn't had for a while and and haven't had since actually really. Um, so for so at one level that the church was a bit of a work intellectual workshop for these new ideas. So uh, so there was a, a really flourishing ecumenical movement of which Temple and Tawney were right at the heart of. Uh, and lots of people producing intellectual work around economic life and all sorts of stuff coming in this sort of vein that I'm talking about. Different ideas, a, a lot of diversity, but in, in this sort of vein. Uh, what did they think more specifically about, um, you know, the church's role? Uh, it's important to say, and I'm going to focus here on Tawny because it's hard to talk about both together briefly because mm. they, they did have their differences as well. But Tawny particularly, they, they, well, they both did. They had, a, as well as being a high belief in the role of the church, were also very critical of the church. And Tawny was, so his most famous book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, is really a history of how the church capitulated under the pressure of the new economic order that rose in Europe uh, in the 16th and 17th century, uh, what we call capitalism. Uh, and really lost its voice and lost its its ethos. Um, he wrote in one of his books, this is a, a classic quote, quote, he was talking by this stage, by the 17th and 18th century uh, Christianity in England. He said, what was Christian in Christianity had largely disappeared. God had been thrust into the frigid altitudes of infinite space. <laughs> there was a limited monarchy in heaven as well as upon earth. That's <laughs> pretty savage. Yeah, and and he talked about the ch other times about the Church of England as an instrument of class repression, you know. So he didn't mince his words. Yeah. He had a <laughs> very strong critique of the church. But then, 
He also had an incredibly strong sense of the vocation of the church, uh, the calling of the church uh, to be a new society in itself, to be the place where the new social order is already being modelled uh, and being practised and lived ahead of uh, the nation and the rest. Of, and, and he actually thought really for the church to be truly and fully its, itself, it needed to be disestablished in England. So he was against establishment, which is interesting for an Anglican. Mm. Um, he thought it needed to be independent of the state um, and it needed to that recapture a much stronger uh, sense of uh, Christian economic ethics. And he was really big on, on the idea that, that Christianity uh, suggests and in the New Testament and in the teaching of the church fathers and through medieval Christianity as well, uh, everything about Christianity uh, suggests a very strong ethic of economic life and that that should be embodied and lived by the members of the church no matter what else everyone else is doing. Um, and that that was its uh, fundamental to its witness to society, was to be people who lived by this this mode of economic life. Um, and that would be how it won its converts, actually. Uh, not because we Christians live the same as everyone else, but because Christians live visibly different from everyone else. Mm. Yeah, right. So... Yeah, so many, so many questions that we probably don't have time to get into now. And I'm like, we've talked about the church's economic community. We've got other things that delve into what that might look like. But is is that still something the church can do today? I, would Tawny have a critique of or or ideas for what we ought to do in our churches today? Uh, so I think that that core idea um, is still really holds true. Uh, so I mean, you know right at the heart of Manigam's uh, work is that, that that play that comes from Tawny, that, that Christians relearn their economic ethics and relearn uh, what the gospel has to say about economic life. So I think that plea for him and the idea that the church be a society, a distinctive society uh, that lives differently from uh, capitalist culture uh, is just as current today as ever. So I think um, uh, that uh, strand of his thinking is certainly um, certainly still relevant. Did Tony think that all Christians should vote for the Labour Party? <laughs> uh, he probably, he, he never said so. <laughs> he probably thought that, I imagine. Uh, he, he certainly thought, um, look, he was a Democrat, so he... he, he saw the need for multi-party democracy and diversity of opinion. He defended that very strongly, actually. So he could see reason, but at, at a minimum, he thought all Christians uh, should at least be recognizing the core ideas of Christianity in which are um, don't, allow, uh, don't allow you to justify oppression, uh, that are opposed to vast discrepancies in wealth uh, and concentrations of wealth uh, that don't see uh, a harsh individual individualistic society as acceptable. He, he thought that um, w however you, you express that politically, and there could be conservative or uh, political expressions of that as well, you didn't have to vote for that, that you... Um, being a Christian meant there are some pretty core cool things that you did need to agree upon. Mm. 
Mm. And there were th- things, there were lines you couldn't really cross. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so far we've said quite a lot to the praise of Christian socialism. Surely, though, there's things to say against it. What What would you say are some of the shortcomings? What didn't work, or what are some limitations that it suffers from? Sure, yeah, and that I think that's an important question. I think that the top one, which I think probably most people will have uh, will already recognise, having listened to this, that was that there is a highly idealistic movement, you know, and and probably uh, even people like Temple and Tawney, who could be very pragmatic as well, were still yeah, maybe um, too idealistic. Um, uh, I say that with the mixed... I'm actually not... I think that sometimes and other times I don't think that because one thing they were trying to do was to give people something higher to aim for, to shoot for, even even if they didn't necessarily think we'd get there. But um, So anyway, they were idealistic. And I think for Tawny particularly that... that he, uh, a shortcoming was he placed too much hope in the labor movement. Um, so he really saw in the labor movement, in working men getting together, something almost like a proto-Christian mu- movement, you know, almost like a, a church that's not the church. Mm. And it, and one of his, you know, he, he preached as much to the labor party and the labor mo- movement that uh, they shouldn't, that, if the Labour Party was true to its values, it shouldn't do party politics like the others do it, that it really should be a moral party that's uh, not just trying to win votes, but actually trying to win hearts and minds and convert people to a new, uh, a moral vision of life, which is exactly what he thought of the church. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty religious sentiment. Uh, He was always aware, he, he thought, you know, if it's just about winning higher wages then all we will have done is replaced one bad master with another bad master. Mm. Um, mm. And and that was always his fear about what uh, Labour politics, where it would go. And that, to some extent, history has borne that out, uh, that there's been as much that's in the Labour movement, particularly post the Second World War, which is about, uh, you know, uh, people getting as much as they could without uh, a bigger a view of the whole. Mm. Um, so he was probably a bit too hopeful and idealistic about that. I think Temple and Tawny were a bit um, unsure, unclear within themselves around whether Britain was a Christian country or not. Mm. <laughs> at, at times, you you know, particularly reading Tawny, he's denouncing uh, the economic order as as you know pagan, and there's nothing Christian there at all. And other times, they they're appealing to the public on Christian values, which they sort of assume are accepted by most people. Right. <laughs> um, so there's a bit of this, um, you know, and I guess that does reflect the funny point in history of sort of post Christendom uh, at that point in time. Um, but I think perhaps their biggest failure or yeah, I guess so. The thing they never did was really, they didn't work to transform the local church. So uh, they both hoped to see the church uh, change, but they were working at the national level uh, and they were, you know, these leaders out the front, but they weren't at the grassroots of, of local churches and local churches in England largely stayed the same. You know, um, there was a bit of a renewal of, of, I guess, the clergy through the influence of people like them. But yeah, they... Um, 
they didn't transform the local church. And I think uh, that meant that a lot of their ideas, once they passed, um, passed away with them. Hmm. So I guess like in terms of the local church for us today, what would it look like to, as you say, sort of be that forerunning economic community? And, and it seems like socialism is probably not a term with a lot of relevance or currency or, or meaning in this context for people today. Like if socialism, the word has just traveled so far from Christian socialism in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, what are, what are kind of the carryovers? What are the things that might be carrying the flag for that, even if it's by a different name? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, there's now so much baggage associated with that word socialism. And as we said at the intro, most people will think about it in ways totally different from what we've just talked about. Um, that I think, you know, I don't think it's a useful word anymore. Uh, mostly. <laughs> Again, I'm undecided. You know, there's some times when I think, and I think if I was to ask for anything of listeners is to when they hear that word being used by someone is not to either just denounce it immediately or just embrace it, but to ask what are the actually ideas that they're, they're trying to, to convey by that word? Because different people use it differently still today. Mm. So um, if there's one plea, to be open at least to when people use that word to finding out more about what it is they actually are advocating. Uh, and believe, uh, and uh, whether there's something to be engaged with there. Because I think, you know, there are some people using it today uh, who talk about socialism who um, can and should be engaged and have some good things to say. Generally, I've not used the word myself, I mean, talked about these days because I I think it's too, you know, it's likely to be a red herring for people. But um, yeah. so I'm not, and at certainly at the the level of for day, you know, for in day to day life and local churches, it's it's largely irrelevant. That wouldn't mean much. As uh, we, we already said, that you know, the the task for uh, that churches can take up is reclaiming this idea of uh, what it means to live out Christian economic ethics in an everyday sense uh, and in a communal sense um but there i guess you can see kind of the value of still having a term for something like that even if it's not christian socialism but you can see why they went with something oh yeah and umbrella term for living out the christian economic ethic in daily life well living it out but then there's another need that we have which is uh, so and this is something that both temple and tawny were both big on is not just living it out ourselves but also enacting our political citizenship so not only are we people who actually are agents out there in economic life as you know workers and consumers and the rest um we vote and we can get we can organize politically and we can join uh we can join campaigns or we can join political parties whatever but if we're going to be we sh- we have a responsibility to be involved in political life uh but what ideas are we going to arrange that by? Um, and for them, socialism captured the ideas by which they they sort of structured their political uh, goals and, and how they thought about their political citizenship. And that's where we need. Uh, we're sort of fl- fl- nowhere at the moment. Um, there's, you know, that we uh, they had a very clear term that they worked towards. Um, if it's not socialism for us, what is it? What what do we what are we working towards? Um, I sometimes think 
uh, in Australia today that, that there's this group, a movement called the New Economy Movement. Mm. I sort of think there may be a little bit analogous to what that some of that earlier uh, socialism was like. It's a broad and diverse movement with lots of ideas, some of them a bit silly and some other really good <laughs> ones. <laughs> you know, lots of, um, so lots of currents of thought. Um, I sort of, that, that might be analogous. Um, so we might find, you know, getting involved in a movement like that, which is uh, really a broad church uh, and open to new ideas and people hashing stuff out and really thinking about how might we do things differently. You know, that, um, that could be something, uh, a way that Christians could begin to translate um, some of the sorts of ideas that we've just talked about. But I think moving into that, the the, the sorts of ideas that Tawny had, even if the, the actual the policy prescriptions ideas that he came up with, they're sort of, the history's past now, they're, they're irrelevant. But still, the, the, the ways in which he thought about property the meaning of industry and the function of these things, I think, still think they're really helpful for people in thinking through some of the bigger questions questions of political and life and economic structure. Hmm. Any any final thoughts about what that looks like for the local church? I'm just someone in my, my church of 50 people around the corner. What do I want to do if I think these are worthwhile ideas? Yeah, okay. In very short, I mean, we've, uh, to without starting a new podcast here, um, you know that means exploring things like ethical consumption. We've talked about that, uh, and that's a that's a whole universe uh, in itself. Uh, thinking about work quite differently, how we think about work in our homes, but also in our our communities and our church communities, and how our church communities relate to their local communities. Uh, cooperatives is so getting back to that very early idea of. Um, Christian socialists, uh, I think, have a real part to play. Churches are, are, are ready-made institutions to start little cooperatives, uh, whether it's like um, consumer cooperatives for buying bulk goods, uh, people getting together to do different things. Uh, that's a uh, which is both ways of being efficient with the goods of the earth, but also helps people out financially, mm. um, and also brings people together socially, gives them stronger social connections. Uh, they're all really good places to start. Yeah, and if you if you're keen on it, just pick one. Just start there and talk to other people about it. I would also add, like, the, all this stuff becomes becomes stronger when it's when it's shared. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, we'll definitely leave it there for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you liked the episode, or you know someone who might like it, why not send it along to them? And if you could, please review us on whatever platform you got this podcast on. If it's iTunes, if it's Spotify, whatever it is, leave us a review. Even if you don't use iTunes, going to iTunes and reviewing us on iTunes is particularly helpful because of all the metrics and the metadata and the algorithm and all that sort of stuff. That would be wonderful. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, you should check out Manor Matters. Manor Matters is the quarterly publication of Managum comes out three times a year for free at managum.org.au you can find it online and you can also sign up to the paper the print edition of it finally managum is funded entirely by donations so if you'd like to support our work if you like what we do that same website managum.org.au that's the place to go many thanks to all of you who already support what we do here rh tawny's come up a lot in this podcast we'll leave you with a quote from him the important thing however he says 
is not that it should be completely attained, but that it should be sincerely sought. What matters to the health of society is the objective towards which its face is set. Thank you, John. I got a lot out of this conversation as well. And thank you, Jacob. We'll see you all next time.